It's Thursday, July 5th, and this is The Daily Dive. What has happened to the great American summer job? America's teens just aren't working as much anymore. More teens are going to school over the summer, some are doing community service work, and others are just taking unpaid internships. Drew DeSilver, senior writer at the Pew Research Center, joins us to talk about why the number of teens with summer jobs has dropped and what type of work are they getting into. Next, we will talk about the new arms race that is threatening to explode in space. It was mid-June when President Trump announced that he wanted to create a space force. While some may have thought it was just another rambling by the president, it might be much more necessary than you think. Garrett Graff, contributing editor to Wired, joins us to discuss why we need someone looking out for us in space. It has a lot to do with GPS, and China and Russia are also major players. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's also some structural changes in the economy that have been going on. A lot of the low-skill jobs that don't require a lot of training that uh, teens used to fill, uh, those jobs don't really exist anymore. You know, some of these jobs that used to be just summer employment jobs have been taken by, are now being filled by adults. Joining us now is Drew DeSilver, senior writer at Pew Research Center. Thank you very much for joining us, Drew. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about what has happened to the great American summer job. Teens aren't working as much as they used to during the summer. What's going on? Well, that's true. They aren't. They're, in fact, not working as much as they used to the rest of the year, too. But summer employment has always been the highest for teens because they're out of school and, and you know they need money and don't have much else to do, I yeah, guess. And do something over the summer, basically. Yes. You can't, you can't <laughs> sit around and, and play video games, I right. guess. But what I did was I looked at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that goes back to the late 1940s. Uh, since that time, uh, up until right around uh, 2000, right around uh, right before the dot-com recession, usually right around 50% of teens, uh, and teens being 16-year-olds to 19-year-olds, had some kind of some job in the, at some part of the summer. Yeah, it's a pretty good number. Almost half of teens are, are getting some type of work going. Then after the after the Great Recession, or not the Great Recession, but the uh, dot-com recession, mm-hmm. we have to keep our recession straight, <laughs> the teen summer employment rate just plunged down to close to 40%. And it never really recovered all that much during the 2000s. And then after the Great Recession that hit in late 2007, 2008, 2009, it just sank way down, down to less than a third. Uh, As of last summer, by my calculations, about 35% of teens were employed uh, at least at some point during the summer. So what are some of the main reasons why teens aren't working as much anymore? That's a good question, and uh, there's not a lot of good answers for it. There's a lot of theories. Uh, teens are staying in school longer. The, the school year, in a lot of cases, doesn't get out until late June, and uh, sometimes it starts back up again in late August, so there's not as much time for teens to work. And not even as beneficial for some businesses. you got to train people a lot of times, and they're only going to be there really quick. Uh, you know, the, you're wasting a bunch of time. Some That's true. Teens, uh, sometimes they'll be doing, as part of their graduation requirements, they do community service work, which is not counted as paid employment since it's not paid. Uh, they may be doing uh, unpaid internships. They may be going to summer school. A lot of a lot of teens are doing you know, college prep classes or some kind of remedial classes of some sort during the summer, so they have less time to work. There's also some structural changes in the economy that have been going on. A lot of the low-skill jobs that don't require a lot of training that uh, teens used to fill, uh, those 
those jobs don't really exist anymore. You know, some of these jobs that used to be just summer employment jobs have been taken by, are now being filled by adults. So when these teens are getting jobs over the summer, what industry sectors are they usually working in? The two most common ones that uh, teens uh, are working in are what we call accommodation and food services, which is largely restaurants and hotels and things of that nature, and uh, retail, your basic retail job. But the interesting thing is that since 2000, and we only have data that goes back to 2000 for the the industry breakdowns, uh, back in 2000, it was roughly the same share of teens got jobs in those two sectors as the 23% and 24%. But since then, accommodation and food services have really gone up. It's now about a third of all teens who are employed during the summer are employed in accommodation and food services, and only about a fifth are in retail. So we've seen a somewhat decline of retail, but a really big increase in uh, accommodation and food services. Yeah, and malls aren't even the same thing that they once were. Uh, you know, malls across the country are closing all the time, and so I, I could imagine that even those jobs are a little tougher to come by sometimes. I think that's probably has uh, has a lot to do with it. Yes, I mean we we've, we've been hearing for years about how America is overmalled and over retailed, and uh, we see retailers like Toys R Us going going under, and uh, a lot of the you know the clothing brands have gone under. The you know the entry level low skill type retail jobs, uh, you know filling filling in for summer shifts and things. Those are the ones that we've seen a decline in. Looking at some of the smaller sectors in your article also, there was arts and entertainment and recreation. What, what kind of jobs are considered? That's kind of a, a, a heterogeneous uh, mix of, of uh, industries. Uh, we have a lot of things like uh, you know working for the local sports team, working gotcha. in museums, working in uh, you know tourist attractions. The folks who who uh, sell you soft serve at the county fair, or, right. okay. or uh, <laughs> people are in, people are people are working at a summer stock theater. Those it's a, a mix of all that sort of thing. Did you have a summer job when you were younger? I did. I had one of those retail jobs. My uh, father owned a uh, small record and stereo shop in my hometown, and oh, cool. I got to work there during uh, the summers in high school. I'm sure that was actually kind of fun, though. I mean, something uh, music, something very easy to kind of get into. It was, and I, I got to sell records to my friends, and I also got to uh, <laughs> to buy records uh, for the wholesale price instead of the retail price, and That's I, cool. I learned the difference between wholesale and retail. When I was younger, I worked at a supermarket. Luckily, I didn't have to to bag groceries or anything. I was in the produce department and uh, I actually learned a ton in there and got to eat free fruits and vegetables every now and then. So it was actually kind of a, a fun job that I had. But And that carried on beyond the summer into I just kind of did that part-time while I was going to school. So it was actually a really cool job that I, that I got to partake in. That's interesting. That's that's one of the things that summer jobs give teens. Is they give you a chance to learn about an area or learn about the working world. And that's what some of the experts uh, who've looked into this are concerned about, is that fewer teenagers are actually getting this sort of pre-work experience before they actually launch into their uh, stable part of their careers. Right. Uh, and I guess that's why a lot of people are trying to get, you know, the internships and whatnot, they're more career-focused, school-oriented, and things like that. And uh, some of these things provide great experiences while you're getting some money, maybe not towards a a larger career, though. Drew DeSilver, senior writer at Pew Research Center, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. When it comes to defending America, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance 
in space. Very importantly, I'm hereby directing the Department of Defense and Pentagon to immediately begin the process necessary to establish a space force as the sixth branch of the armed forces. That's a big statement. Joining us now is Garrett Graff. He's a Wired contributing editor. Thank you very much for joining us, Garrett. My pleasure. I found your article. There's a new arms race threatening to explode in space, and it's a fascinating read. In mid-June, the president held a press conference, said he's directing the Pentagon and the Department of Defense to go ahead and create a new space force. And everybody had a chuckle, a laugh. People really didn't necessarily know what was going on. They just thought it was another crazy Trump thing. But after reading some of your stuff, it's actually not so far-fetched. You know, it might be something we actually need. It has a lot to do with GPS and how another country could possibly cripple us by targeting satellites in space. But let's start in January 11th, 2007. You were telling us a story about uh, Air Force Major General William Shelton and something that they were monitoring with the Chinese. Space is an area where the United States has been primarily dominant for a generation. And we've gotten sort of very used to that in the course of the way that we sort of live our lives and live in the military and other fields. Sort of more and more of our daily life is moving up into outer space. And so that's our telephone calls, that's our banking system, and really the entire modern world is underpinned by the GPS system, the global positioning system and the satellite constellation above. We think of it you know, as uh, your way to get around on Google Maps, but it, it's really much more than that. It's the world's most accurate clock. And so it's used by banks to run the ATM networks. It's used by the stock exchanges to run stock trades. It's used by gas stations to run their gas pumps and their credit card networks. And then, you know, of course, it's used for Uber and Lyft to order your cars and get the drivers to you and get the drivers to where they're going. That's sort of the backdrop against which, and as you said, January 11, 2007, the U.S. Air Force was monitoring what had appeared to be sort of preparations for a Chinese missile launch of an anti-satellite weapon against one of China's own satellites. And at the time, no one really expected China to be able to either pull off a successful test, but also sort of didn't really believe that at the end of the day, China would blow up one of its own satellites. Anytime you're blowing up something in space, that debris field, the space junk created by that uh, explosion in outer space, can last for decades and impedes the ability of anyone else to launch satellites into that particular orbit and impedes the safety and security of all of the other satellites in outer space. It's a huge technological advancement, too, because, you know, when you look at things in space or pictures or whatnot, things seem to be moving slow. They're not. Things are moving fast. These satellites are always in motion. And for a, a missile to hit a satellite like that, I mean, it's there. That's a precise target hit right there. Someone uh, compares it to sort of the marksmanship equivalent of a sniper being able to hit a bullseye on a speeding train in one direction while riding a speeding train in the other direction. It's a feat of immense technical skill, as well as very precise targeting capabilities. And so in January 2007, the U.S. watched as China 
launched this anti-satellite missile. It went up into orbit and blew up an old Chinese satellite. And that was a real turning point for the United States because we have built much of our economy and certainly much of our military's advantage on these billion-dollar massive bus-sized satellites sitting out there unprotected in outer space. And now, as of 2007, people began to realize that other adversaries had been noticing America's reliance on outer space systems, and we're beginning to move to counter that. Yeah, that's the big... China has actually spoken publicly about America's vulnerability in space as America's Achilles heel. Yeah, that's and that's leads to the the fears and why we might need a quote unquote space force. Uh, China, the Chinese, Russians, they notice this stuff, and if they take an opportunity to cripple us in that way, then we're sitting ducks in a lot of other ways. In your piece, you say that fourteen of the sixteen infrastructure sectors that the Department of Homeland Security defines as critical all rely on GPS for their operations. So if you take out some GPS satellites, it puts us in a serious disadvantage at that point. Yeah, and uh, it's the way our fighters navigate. It's the way our ships navigate. It's the way that our missiles know where to go and how we help direct bombs sort of safely and securely to their targets. And that's just the military applications. As I said, you know, there are immense civilian parts of this system that most of us sort of don't think about. You probably interact with the GPS system overhead dozens of times a day and probably most days don't think about it at all. And it's this immense vulnerability. And so it's sort of, as you said, that we get so used to these sort of seemingly out of the blue, wacky pronouncements from President Trump that I think most Americans saw his rambling comments at a couple of different points this spring about the need for a space force as just another Trumpian spout off. But in fact, it represents a very serious ongoing public policy debate that actually has been moving through Congress uh, and the Pentagon over the last couple of years. The House National Defense Authorization Act last year actually called for the creation of the Space Force. They called it the Space Corps as a sort of subservient part of the Air Force much like the Marines are part of the Department of the Navy. Donald Trump now is talking about something different that would be a full sixth branch of the military separate uh, with its own you know, secretary of the Space Force. But this is something that actually really didn't come out of nowhere and probably actually very accurately reflects the threats and the intelligence briefings that the president is getting from the nation's military and intelligence leaders. When I was speaking to then director of National intelligence Jim Clapper as he was leaving office in the fall of 2016. He actually said to me at the time that space was one of his top three concerns in the in the world. And it's something that his successor, Dan Coates, the current director of national intelligence, has sort of reiterated this year in what's called the global threat assessment, sort of the annual major roundup of the world's top threats. Let's move forward a little into let's say, a a future type of space war, what are the main categories of space weapons that could be used to target satellites and other things like that? 
This is part of what makes this story so fascinating is that in the intelligence community and the, in the U.S. military, as well as certainly in the American public, actually have very little visibility into what our main peer and near peer adversary nation states are developing as space weapons. Russia and China have, we know, very active space and counter space weapons and one of the ones that is certainly no pun intended on our radar is something known as object 2014-28E which was something that the Russians launched into orbit in 2014 that the U.S. originally thought was basically just space junk. Uh, it was right. something that uh, didn't appear to be doing anything at all. And then the U.S. began to sort of notice it actually moving around in outer space. This is something that most satellites don't have the capability to do. And part of what makes space such a challenging domain for intelligence analysts is it's really hard to know intentionally if you're looking at a country like China or Russia that is saying that uh, it's building sort of space repair capabilities, well, those look a lot like space destructive capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, as I had sort of one analyst say to me, if something has a grappling arm to help fix something, well, that grappling arm can also rip something out. <laughs> we have our secrets too, though. You know, we have uh, some unmanned space shuttle-like vehicles that have been orbiting the Earth. Uh, there was one that was orbiting the earth for like 718 days and it was like a huge secret right so you know at Absolutely. the same time we're also one developing. Up there right now doing yeah. who knows what and like you said also you know the rise of companies like spacex and everything in the near future space low-level orbit all that stuff is going to be very very impacted with a lot of debris and, and and travel and stuff like that so it is kind of important to really develop these type of defense measures that really gets to sort of part of the heart of this debate around the space force or the space core this is going to be an arena, a domain in the government speak that is increasingly populated by commercial interests and even tourists. Um, you know, you've got Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rockets. You've got Elon Musk's SpaceX. You know, you're going to see space tourists for the first time in the next couple of years beginning to pay to orbit the Earth. And whether we build a true military force looking uh, at outer space, focused on space defense and offense, or whether we build something sort of more akin to a space coast guard, sort of something that's more of a police force, sort of a good governance force for outer space is part of the sort of open question around the, the development and the evolution of the U.S. space fighting assets. Yeah, it's just such an interesting discussion because you hear space force and you think we're getting ready for that big asteroid that's going to hit the earth soon. And that's really not what this is about. It's, it's so much more imminent, something that we really need to be monitoring because as you say, if our GPS system gets targeted and it, you know, it could collapse the entire global economy at some point. One of the things that really shocked me as I was researching this article is that the U.S. actually has no persistent capability to watch space in real time. So we don't really know what's happening up above moment by moment. What we get are basically batch processed 
radar images that give us a snapshot of what space looked like about six hours ago every six hours. And so there's a lot of room for something to take place and to begin to unfold far overhead that we would be literally blind to. It's a fascinating story. We didn't even get to touch on a lot of things that are in the article. It's a great read. Uh, We'll point people to it on our social media. Garrett Graff, contributing editor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.